So can you hear me? Yeah? Okay. So last night, Heather ended with a really wonderful poem, and I wanted to read it again and start there tonight. So it's a poem, it's called Finally, and uh, it's by a woman whose name is Perlisa Gerstler. And she says, Finally, on my way to yes, I burn into all the places where I said no to my life. All the unintended wounds, the red and purple scars, the hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin and bones. Those coded messages that sent me down the wrong street. Again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy, holy. So I always appreciate it when other teachers end their talk with something that I can pick up the next night. So, you know, again and again, many of us know this, that when we finally listen to our old wounds, when we finally listen to the wounded heart, we find out that it is in fact holy, that there's something very sacred about this listening. And we begin to see, if we're really paying attention, that the heart knows. And Heather talked last night about how the Buddha followed his own heart, and despite the wishes of everyone around him, nobody wanted him to go off and be a Buddha. You know, his family wanted him to stay home and be the king, and the dad, and the husband. But he left, and he practiced, and he found the awakening that still reverberates today, an awakening 2,600 years ago that is effectively what brought all of us here to this center tonight. You know, this little center in Northern California, all because of the Buddha. So then today in my inbox, in my email, because I am still doing email, unlike the rest of you, I got this quote from Carl Jung. And he said, Your vision will become clear only when you can look into your own heart. Who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakes? Who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakes? So I wanted to talk tonight about exactly this kind of thing, about the importance of listening to the heart and of following the thread of its call. And it's really important because it really does seem that only when we can listen to our own heart can we actually really open to the hearts of others. And and we're learning this some as we do the metta practice. We have to do it for ourselves. 
So tonight's talk is um, highly personal, which always feels a bit risky. But then I figured after the angry monkeys and Heather's embarrassment, um, maybe it was safe enough to go ahead with my own. So last winter, this winter just passed, my husband Russell and I found that our life had turned into a rather significant obstacle course. So the first thing that happened was we had a really serious automobile accident um, at the end of November where we were stopped at a stop sign, two little old folks in our little Honda Fit, and a truck on the highway that we were attempting to cross went out of control and smashed into us, T-boned us, on his side of the car. And amazingly enough, although the little car was totaled, we weren't. And um, it left me with a broken clavicle and a broken rib and him with a lot of soft tissue damage and also some broken ribs. And of course, you know, we were both pretty emotionally traumatized. I can still very clearly remember the moment of impact. Those of you who've been in accidents probably have some similar experiences. So, you know, everything changed in that moment and trips got canceled. You know, he was about to go off and be with his seriously ill father and I canceled a trip that was actually going to bring me right here where I was going to be a student at the nun's retreat that happens between Christmas and New Year. And um, at the same time, you know, even while life was being so difficult and hard to navigate, we also received incredible support from our little community up there on the volcano and, um, and also from our hula brothers and sisters. And we discovered that we had an, another interesting piece of learning, which was we had to learn to allow ourselves to be cared for and for people to help out. And then this was followed some weeks later by surgery to, that was needed in order to repair the clavicle and that was almost immediately followed by a bad bone bleed that took me back to the emergency room uh, the same day as the operation. And then two days after that, uh, the call came that said Russell's father was actually dying and he needed to go. So it was all, as you can imagine, <laughs> I can feel it even as I'm talking, it was a bit overwhelming. you know. And in addition to all of that, Somewhere in all of this, uh, I think after Russell left, the other car managed to break down too. So, you know, it just seemed like it was one big thing after another. And it was just one of those times when, you know, ordinary life just could not and would not go forward in any um, semblance of sanity. And it just was filled with difficulty and lost. So he left as he should have. And I was alone just a day or two after the surgery, barely able to take care of myself, and I did indeed get a lot of help, and really in a state of overwhelm. So fortunately, blessedly, we have a habit of meditating together every day. 
And on the day that my father-in-law passed, I had gotten the news early in the morning. I sat down in front of my Buddha image, you know, to do my practice. And I discovered that I didn't in the slightest want to do Buddhist practice. I wasn't interested. It was too lonely, and it was too austere, and it was too bare. And what I wanted was the 23rd Psalm. I wanted, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I wanted something that was a comfort and a guide, something that was personal and that related to my time and space suffering being. So you can imagine, I mean, this is not who I am. not supposed to have these things. So what was going on? You know, I was like, what? Where did this come from? And what was happening? Because I haven't been in that world for years and years and years. But there is a backstory to it. So the backstory is that when I was a very, very young child, really young, five, six, somewhere in there, being raised in a family that was considerably to the left of center, probably a little on the pink side, for those of you who relate to that image. Religion was the opiate of the masses, and um, they were agnostic, pretty close to being atheists. And somehow, I got this idea. I truly do not know where this came from. I got this idea that what I wanted to do was to be a Catholic. (laughs) And so um, I raised myself Catholic secretly (laughs) because I was really scared to tell my family they weren't going to approve at all. (laughs) So I learned the Hail Mary from the encyclopedia. I cannot tell you how happy I was when I found it. And I collected and hid away religious images on Christmas cards. I would bury them under the dolls in one of my drawers. And as I got older, I would go to church when I had sleepovers with friends. And, you know, I'd pick my Catholic friends on Saturday night and go off to church with them on Sunday morning. And then later, as I got even older, and I was moving around town on my own, I would sneak into churches. And it was a relatively small city, and my father was a public official, so I was really scared that somebody would see me. You know, your daughter was going into Sacred Heart, and I would go in to pray and light candles. So what's interesting to me in all of this is there was something that called me. There was something that called me, and I followed it. So... Another poem that I read a lot on retreats is a poem of William Stafford's poems, and it's called The Way It Is, but I always think of it as the thread. And he says, there's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt, 
or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop time's unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So just out of curiosity, how many of you were raised Buddhist? Right. Okay. How many of you were raised in some other religious tradition? Yeah. How many of you were raised without any religious tradition or spiritual tradition at all? Okay. So how many of you have been on a spiritual journey for a while, if you think about it a little? Yeah? Right. Interesting, huh? So when you look back, probably those of you who have been on a journey for a while see that you have been following a thread. Some of you probably are not on exactly the same journey when you, as you were when you started out. You, know, you started out doing yoga, and then you went to Tibetan practice, and now you're here. Or maybe you went on a Goenka retreat, but then you ended up at Spirit Rock. And like that, you know, it shifts and it changes. And we follow that thread. At home, in my collection of family photos that hangs on the wall, I have a picture of that little girl when she was about seven, the little Mary Orr. I wasn't Mary Grace then. And, you know, she has this great smile, and she has little pigtails, and she has this cute little jacket with a ribbon sort of trim on it. And, you know, she looks bright and lively and happy. And when I look at that picture, I am so grateful for her and for what she had the courage to do. You know, it's very... Amazing, she somehow did find this thread of spiritual practice and the thread of the heart, if you will, and she followed it for years on her own, afraid of being discovered. My story was that I would be disowned. I don't think I knew what disowned meant. I just knew it was a bad thing to happen to you. So no family support, nobody knew. And only a very few friends as time went on. In the Buddhist tradition, there's a story of a man who lived at a time prior, or lived at a time when there was another Buddha, the Buddha prior to the one that we know about. And his name was Sumedho. And he lived in a small village. And at the time, the Buddha of that time, this great, wise, awakened being, came to visit. And so when he came, Sumedho was so taken with him that he really wanted to do something to serve him. And it was a wet and muddy day. And so at some point, as people were processing around and doing the kinds of things that one does under those circumstances, he laid himself down in the mud so that the Buddha would not have to walk in the mud. He walked on Sumedho's body. And in that moment, he made a vow that he would come back at some future time as a Buddha. So this is the legend, right? And, um, and many, many lifetimes later, it is said, he emerged as the Buddha we know today. He created an intention. He followed a thread. 
And there are so many. There's a wonderful collection of stories, if you don't know it, called the Jataka Tales. And these are the stories of all the lifetimes of the Buddha before he was the Buddha, when he was a bodhisattva. So he was a quail, and he was a tiger, and he was all different kinds of people, and he was busy learning what he needed to learn in order to become a Buddha. He's a pretty nice guy in all of the those stories, um, and he was making you know this long, slow progress, lifetimes. So you know, you should note that because if you're not making fast enough progress, <laughs> you might remember that he didn't either. It took him lifetimes. So probably no one here, although I don't know this for sure, has vowed to become a Buddha. I wonder about John once in a while, but. I don't think he's done that, maybe. <laughs> and, but maybe you have. And, but we have followed our threads in order to come here. And it's really important to, to remember that last line. The poem says, never let go of the thread. Never let go of the thread. So <clears throat> we have mentioned several times as the retreat has begun that you had a certain kind of intention as you signed up for this retreat. Okay? You had some reason for coming. And Heather again invited us this morning to reflect back on that intention, to remember to touch it and to use it. It's like you're picking up the thread. So the question is, how can you, how can you listen to that call of the heart during this retreat? Whatever call has led you this far, you know, how can you listen to it and how can you use it to support your being present here during this time? So one of the things to think about is we often have a lot of stories about how a retreat should be. You know, and they're not always the most helpful stories. You know, like, my mind will be still. Good luck. My heart will be open, and I will meet every being, including all of my fellow retreatants, with an open heart and with vast love. I will see deeply into the nature of reality. Or this time, this time, I really, really will forgive my mother or my father or my brother, whoever. This time, I won't be afraid. You know? Or this time I won't be angry or filled with desire or I won't be sleepy all the time and I will deeply trust the process. Maybe. But, you know, it's not easy, is it? It's not. And so again, it's so important to remember how many lifetimes did it take Sumedho? You know, it took him a long, long time. So it's important not to be discouraged, and it's important to set that intention, to create that intention and that setting of direction. Because that's like, you know, that's like when you set a course with a compass, right? And you say, okay, now I'm headed to Seattle, and so I'm going to go north. And you pick out your route on a map, or you perhaps actually do use a compass, and you start out, you know, you, you decide, okay, this is how I'm going to go. But 
Are we always on course? No. You know, and sometimes we change routes, and sometimes we get lost, and sometimes the car breaks down, and sometimes things happen. So then we have to regroup, and we recalculate the course, and we start again. So if you haven't done it already, I really invite you to let go of any overachieving ideas about this retreat. You can still head in that same direction, the direction of forgiveness, the direction of stillness, the direction of less fear, the direction of more clarity of mind, you know, a compassionate heart, all wonderful, wonderful intentions. But then again, you keep coming back and you keep coming back. You, know, you don't, we drift away from that intention. So we check our thread moment by moment. How am I doing here? And if you're headed for Seattle and you suddenly discover you're halfway to Los Angeles, you know, something's wrong, right? And you, oh, I think I'm headed in the wrong direction and you change. Same thing here. So it's also really important to remember that as we set an intention and as we start on this journey, as we're following the thread, as there are many, many stories of beings who have followed threads, there are often a lot of obstacles. There are things that get in the way. So some of them are really well known. They're on the map. They're listed by the Buddha, and they're very well known to a number of you because you've been on many retreats. And I'm not really going to talk about them tonight, but I really did want to mention. So this is the five hindrances, right? So this is expected. You know, it's like there's, um, if if you're going, you know, up to Seattle, you have to go over the mountains in Oregon, and there's all different kinds of things you have to do. If you're going to hike through the forests in California, you might expect that there would be mountain lions or bears. So, okay, you're on your journey, your meditator's journey, and there are these things called the five hindrances, and they are desire and anger and um, restlessness and sloth or laziness or torpor and doubt. So if any of those are plaguing you, This is to be expected. It's not because you are some weird kind of meditator. They are definitely on the map. And your intention is going to come up against them over and over and over again. And sometimes, undoubtedly, the hindrance will predominate. It will win. You will have a sitting that is filled with desire. I remember, in fact, it was here over in the other hall at one of my very first retreats, I spent sitting after sitting inventing the most wonderful tofu burgers. I wanted, you know, it was going to be perfect. You know, the bun was going to be toasted and the tofu was going to be browned a little bit and lettuce and tomatoes and no onions and it was going to be... They weren't serving tofu burgers, but I had just decided that would be an ideal food to have, and so the mind would go off with this lust for tofu burgers. It's kind of funny when I think about it now. But you know, even a hindrance can be a teaching, right? So even a very 
painful mind state because it can show us where we have work to do. We should bow to these things when we come along. Thank you. Now I see. This is where I'm not finished yet. It's where sometimes I say it's where I'm not cooked yet. There's still some work to be done. And we have a lot of desire or a lot of aversion or we are really suddenly discover, you know, I'm really pretty lazy and I don't work very hard. Or I have a lot of doubt. Well, this it may feel like it's bad news, but if you see it, it's not. It's good news. You know, then you can do something about it. Because this is a training. You know, this is not something that you just decide to do and then you have it. I wish it were so easy. But we wouldn't be here if it were that easy, would we? You know, so you have to come. You have to come to this boot camp and do this training, and those of you who've done many, 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 many of them know that you come back over and over and over again in order to keep up your practice and to intensify. Been looking over the interview sheets the last couple of days, and you know, I'm really interested, particularly with the, the students who've been on a number of retreats. You know, a lot of times the comment that gets made is it's time. You know, I need to come back. I need to put myself in this kind of intense situation again to really beef up my practice. So that's part of staying true to our threat, is seeing that the hindrance is part of our training and it's something that we can work with. So the other thing is that when we're listening to our hearts, as I said at the beginning, that's when, as we listen to our own heart, and as we respond to ourselves with heartfulness, that's when we can begin to open to others with kindness and compassion. But this is also a training. Again, it's not something that's easy, is it? Not. And so that's what we're doing at the five o'clock set every day is taking a period of time to do the training of kindness and compassion. And again, it can often bring up the opposite. You sit down to do a period of loving kindness and you discover you are really pissed off at somebody. Like, what? How can that be here? But it happens when we do this partly because the loving-kindness practice, like all of our practice, is a um, purification practice, and it will bring up the opposite. So, again, it doesn't mean you're doing a bad job. In fact, it probably means you're doing a good job, and it's the next step. This is where you really have to work. It shows you the way. It shows you where your training needs to go. So I began with the story of the really young Mary Grace and um, following her thread and you with your own thread. And I have to say that I am blissfully happy to be here in a Catholic center with all of the images around. But, you know, since that day, uh, my path has had some interesting it's obvious, also fairly obvious that I'm not a Catholic nun, although 
some of my friends seem to think that maybe I was in some past lifetime or other, but I don't know about that. So that was in the 50s. I was born in 1941, and so all of this started in the late 40s and early 50s. And, you know, even the church was very, very different then. And there were a lot of rules that even aren't rules anymore. And as I got older, I began to realize I wasn't going to be a very good Catholic because I intended to break all the rules. So that didn't seem like such a smart idea. And I ended up um, becoming a good Episcopalian for a while. And also during that time, I would go to Quaker meeting with an aunt of mine who was a very good Quaker. And I loved the silence, and there was something so enriching about it. So that was interesting. I, I think I must have said a number of times I thought the ideal blend of practice was to be an Episcopalian and a Quaker. And then I met a group of people who were very interested in the interface of Western spiritual practices and Jungian psychology. And I studied with them for almost 10 years. And a lot of um, doing deep inner work, the way the Jungian work is, and looking at my own inner experience. And you might remember, that's partly, I think, why I liked that quote that came my way today. You know, he who looks inside awakes. And then there was a little bit of a spell when I wasn't doing much of anything, during which I I met Russell, the man that I'm married to. And um, I went off to a transpersonal psych conference at Asilomar and met Jack Cornfield and fell in love with Buddhist practice. I was like, oh, they know how to do it. You know, they know how to meditate and contemplate. I was so excited, so excited. And so, you know, for the last 30-odd years, I've rested there as a Buddhist teacher. So that's partly why I was like, what? What is this 23rd Psalm business popping up in my psyche right now? <clears throat> But for whatever reason, and possibly because I was a little overwhelmed and a little desperate and didn't know what else to do, I thought, well, maybe I should listen. You have those moments, you know, when your heart says something and you finally go, hmm, maybe I should listen. So I did. And I went and got a copy. I think I had Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Psalms and read that, and then I spent some time reading through, as the days went by, reading through some of the other psalms, and, you know, found some wonderful things. Norman Fisher, who is a a Zen priest who also teaches in the Vipassana world, and, you know, a good Jewish boy, has his own translation, and that's where I found that wonderful line that I read to you the other night, which says, happy are they who find their home in the kingdom of what is. Hmm? That's you this week. Aren't we happy? Here we are in the kingdom of what is. And so what I noticed and what I got really interested in, why I wanted to talk about it, is I noticed that in following that thread and really listening again, finally, things began to open up in a very interesting way. And my practice got really joyful and really juicy for a while. 
And the way practice does. We've all had that experience. You know, it comes and it goes. I found this poem from Hafiz. And he says, Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. It's a great poem because, you know, you can take out that word loneliness and put in any word you want. Don't surrender your anger so quickly. Don't surrender your fear. Don't surrender your heart. You know, let it cut more deeply. Let it ferment and see what happens. That's what he's inviting us to do. So this can't be planned. You can't walk out of here tonight, nor can I, and go, okay, this is what I'm going to do. You know, this is, I'm going to follow the thread, and this is where it's going to go. Because it doesn't work that way. It only happens in the present moment. So again, during that time with my Jungian group, one of the sayings that a number of people loved was the will of God. So if you're not a God person, you can change that phrase a little bit. But the will of God, known ahead of time, is not the will of God. Interesting, huh? The will of God, known ahead of time, is not the will of God. Or my Quaker friends, because I do teach in the Quaker world a lot, say way opens. They don't even say the way opens. Way opens. It's a little koan-esque. So it's not in plans. It's not in the goals. It's only in the moment. That's when we can find the thread. And that's what we practice here on this retreat. So don't plan your retreat. In fact, don't do the retreat. Let the retreat do you. Let the retreat do you. And see what happens. Just, and just let yourself be in the present moment. There's nothing that you have to do. And actually for the time being, there's nowhere that you have to go. And even more wonderfully, there's no one that you have to be. You do not have to be who you usually are. All you have to do is sit and walk and show up in here regularly and you know, and see what happens. You don't have to be your usual personality. You know, our minds are so used to having this all planned out. We know what we want to do. We all know what we want to be when we grow up. I'm still thinking about what I want to be when I grow up. I'm 75. I should get over it. But I have this idea that, you know, well, there's maybe the next thing. And we have scheduled events. Some of us have events. I have a retreat planned. I have retreats planned well into 2018. You know, and as I learned on that afternoon in November, I could be gone by 2018. It could change like that. And it was just like that. So we know, we think, what we ought to do and where we ought to go, and we certainly know who we are. And the practice of listening to the heart, of following the thread of wise intention, demands otherwise. The practice of listening to the heart 
and following the thread is the practice of not knowing where it's going to take you. You don't know. And I don't know. Where this retreat will lead is not yours to know. You don't know. So we can practice while we're here in each moment. What is the wise doing or not doing in this moment? You know? And when we begin to follow the thread in that way, that's where it takes us to these astounding, interesting, unexpected places. But it really does demand that we let go of our notion of who we are. And it does demand that we don't know. You know, Suzuki Roshi recommended that we all have the beginner's mind. So those of you who are new on this retreat, you are really lucky because you didn't have so many ideas about the retreat. So all of us are invited to do that over and over again because knowing destroys opportunity and it destroys the possibility of change and growth. It simply removes it. And not knowing allows curiosity and obedience to that thread. And you know, all of the great stories about the heroes and heroines who have followed the path through the forest, you know, the breadcrumbs, or the guide rope, or the star, you know, they all end up having challenges, don't they? And they all end up going through times of darkness. And all we have sometimes is holding on to that threat. It may be all you have, and you have to hold on. The Buddha did offer us a guide that helps with the thread, I think. And that's the guide of the Eightfold Path. And we'll talk about this a lot more towards the end of the retreat. But he talks about wise view and wise intention, wise speech and action and livelihood, and the wise use of energy and concentration and mindfulness. And these are really the foundation of our practice. And I think of them as being a spiral that we go around and around and around. Um, and it doesn't stop. You know? And of course that is the interesting thing about following the thread and walking this path. I used to think that someday I would go in to see my teacher and he or she would say, okay, now you're done. You don't have to do this anymore. You're, you know, high five shake my hand, whatever. And I began to realize that every time I would go in, even when it felt like we were acknowledging that something had shifted, something had opened, then the instruction was, well, go out and practice some more. Keep on doing it. And see what happens next. And I know... I know there are people in here who have studied uh, with my very dear teacher, Hamid Ali, of the Diamond Approach and the Ridwan School. And I remember how he used to love to talk about how it just never came to an end. There was just always more to discover and more to see. 
and he followed his thread from one thing to another. So no matter how deep the insight or how earth-shaking the experience or how brilliant the vision, the wisest intention is always to keep on practicing. And it's not that the insight doesn't come and it's not that we don't appreciate it. We do. And we still have to keep following the thread. So, for my journey, I'm allowing this to happen. I am allowing myself to be happy this week to be here and just kind of look at these images and go, oh yeah, I remember these, you know, these folks. I was especially a fond of, of her, of the Blessed Mother, so it's nice that she's right in my field of vision. And just to see what's happening as the way is opening. So I'm sharing all of this with you because I'm hoping that in some way it will inspire you to do the same thing in your own way, whatever your own thread is, which is undoubtedly extraordinarily different from mine, because that's how it is. And that as we and that as you follow it, you also begin to realize that it's very wise to be obedient to it. We don't like that word very much in our culture. It's a very interesting word, to be obedient to the thread of the heart. We don't get to tell it where to go, you know. We follow. And sometimes it circles around and comes back to the beginning, doesn't it? You know, have any of you found one of the labyrinths here? We'll talk about this more later this week. We have, there are some labyrinths on the property. And, you know, you go into the labyrinth and you think you're getting somewhere, and guess what? Boom! You're back at the beginning again. Not quite the beginning, but almost. It's very annoying. You know, like, what is this? And gradually, gradually, in, out, in, out, this way, that way, you make your way to the center. T.S. Eliot says, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time, to come back around. So really get to know your thread. If you don't know it, pay some attention to it this week. Get interested. Create an intention for your practice. Be fully present in each moment. So as I came in here tonight, I was thinking a little about this talk. And I was thinking, oh, there's something something that needs to be said that I haven't quite said in the talk. So these are the words that came. I just jotted them down. I think Heather saw me doing it, actually, as she came in. So the heart that listens to its own cries, the heart that follows the thread of its own longing, the heart that rests in the present moment, is the heart that becomes big enough to hold the world. The heart that listens to its own cries, the heart that follows the thread of its own longing, the heart that rests in the present moment, 
is the heart that becomes big enough to hold the world. So may we all follow our respective threads so that our hearts may become that big because the world needs people, human beings, men and women with hearts that are enormous right now. So let's sit together for a few minutes.